0: The Corum Deo Church community is a missional church rooted in historic, biblical Christianity and committed to cultural engagement. We hope the message you are about to hear spurs you to deeper reflection on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening.
1: Our scripture this morning is from John chapter 14, verses 1 through 7. and you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. The word of God for the people of God.
0: Guys, that was my mom. Didn't she do a good job reading scripture? You don't don't have to clap, but I guess that's good. All the scripture readers do. We're going to all have a moment here together. Here it is. Okay. You don't have to clap for that either. All that means is I'm old is what this means. All right. Uh, thanks to LASIK, I have not needed glasses for 20 years. However, I'm now old, and um, so I have glasses. So I want to just, we're going to cross the threshold together. Now you will see me up here with glasses sometimes, and that is okay. Uh, said Amen, said all the older people that wear glasses like me. Um, hey, so at the heart of Christianity lies this message called the gospel, the good news. Christianity, as we often say here at Coram Deo, is not about good advice. It's not, here's what you should do to clean up your life, make things better. Here's all the work you should go do to make God happy with you. But rather, Christianity is a message of news of what God has done in Jesus Christ to save sinners and to redeem us. And, And so I want to ask you this question as we begin. What is it? that the gospel gives us, what does the gospel give us? There are lots of ways we could answer that question. There are lots of ways the Bible answers that question. Uh, Billy Graham years ago said, the gospel gives us peace with God. That's a good answer. certainly true. Uh, You might also say the gospel gives us eternal life. That's one of the answers the gospel of John gives us. Also a good and true and biblical answer. Maybe you would say, hey, one of the primary things the gospel gives us is a new heart. Again, also a true and good answer. But I wonder if with all these answers, we're missing the primary, the most foundational important thing the gospel gives us, and that is this. The gospel gives us a father. Listen to this quote from J.I. Packer. From his book, Knowing God, one of the classic books of Christian spirituality in the last century, he writes, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. So that's one man's opinion, but what he's saying is, if being God's child, if the idea that God is your father does not prompt and control all your outlook on life, you may not understand Christianity very well at all. So let that statement sit on you for a minute, and then think about how we tend to talk about Christianity. I would submit to you, we tend to talk in terms of having a personal relationship with Christ. Christ or Jesus. You said God, good answer. That's the right answer. And I think a biblical answer. And Christ, the personal relationship with Christ is not a wrong answer, but here's what I think is interesting. We tend in Christianity to be about Jesus. It's a Jesus movement. We talk a lot about Christ, about his death on the cross, about his work for us in the gospel. Rarely, it seems to me, do we think about a personal relationship with the Father. And yet that's actually the way the Bible talks. That's the way John talks. It's one of the defining characteristics of the Gospel of John. If we think, what is is one of the primary theological deposits that John in his writing makes in our lives and in the Christian faith? It is an understanding and a vision of God as our Father. So that's what I want to think about together this morning. We're going to talk about fatherhood. And I realize that's going to tap a lot of things in your life and in your story. And by God's grace, that's part of what God, I think, wants to do for us is to speak into some of those places. As most of you know, last month, my son, Lewis, and I uh, traveled to Washington, D.C. I had to be there for a conference. It also happens that I have an uncle who is a United States Senator. And so, as I told you a few weeks ago, he invited me to come and give the opening prayer in the U.S. Senate. Now, this is still a weird thing for me that my Uncle John is one of the most influential people in federal politics. Because my whole life, he's just been Uncle John, right? Like I knew him before he was ever in office. In fact, this particular uncle is my dad's brother. Um, He's 15 years younger than my dad, which means he's closer in age to me then to my dad. So he's kind of been like an older brother figure my whole life. So when I think Uncle John, I remember like 1981 Uncle John with a mullet and like a disco mustache, right? Like that's how long he's been my uncle, you know, before he was like a national public figure. And so we're hanging out in his office in the Capitol building, you know, and he, he, we're just chatting before we go out to the Senate floor. And he says, hey, it's too bad you guys couldn't be here tomorrow. Bono's coming to hang out. I was like, Bono, (laughs) like probably the most influential musician of my lifetime. You mean like the guy who wrote most of the soundtrack of my growing up year, like the guy who wrote Where the Streets Have that guy, just coming to hang out with you? He's like, yeah, we got to know each other a few years back. And so anytime he's in town, he calls me up. So he wanted to go have dinner tomorrow night. So Kimberly and I are taking him and we're going out for dinner. I was like, yeah, that's totally normal. Happens to me every time Bono's in Omaha, he just calls up and says, hey, do you want to go have dinner? No, that never happens. So it got me thinking about, oh, I wish I would have known that because I would have brought my my Joshua Tree CD. You know, maybe you could have had a Bono sign it for me. And then I realized I was with my 18-year-old son who literally has never owned a CD or any other physical artifact that is music. He just streams his music on the internet, on Spotify, right? And so it made me think about how when I was growing up, music was a, tied to a physical artifact. There was a cassette tape or a record or a CD that you had to put in something to play music, right? And that was part of the beauty of that is if you happened to be at dinner with Bono, you might have something for him to sign. I was like, what would my son have Bono sign? His phone? Like What? What do we do now when we meet someone famous? But all of that got me thinking about, you know, my music collection, which is now in a box in the basement. And how back in those days, B-sides were actually a thing, right? Like you had the A-side of an album, which was the commercial radio release. And then the B-side was like the, the deep cuts, the part that might not be as commercially successful or viable, but it was the, kind of the, the part of the album you wanted to listen to because it was usually sort of like deeper creativity. It was sort of like if you were really into a band, this is the part that you wanted to hear because it sort of gave you insight into their musical influences and the kinds of things that they were doing in the studio when they weren't trying to write a radio hit. All of that is a very long intro to this sermon series, the Gospel of John, B-sides, right? Uh, B-sides meaning what we wanna do in the month of May. We've already preached through the Gospel of John. We wanna now look at five themes in this Gospel. If we were just to say, hey, what does John, the Gospel writer, want us to know and understand about God, about Jesus, about the world, about ourselves, about the Gospel? What are some key themes that he keeps playing throughout this gospel. And so that's what we're beginning this morning and we'll continue for the next five weeks. And I want to kick off this series by taking you to one of the most famous verses in the gospel of John. You've already heard it read. It's John 14, verses 6 and 7. It's on page 847 if you're using one of those Bibles underneath your seat. Listen to what Jesus says. John 14, verse 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. I think many Christians are familiar with the first part of this verse. I am the way and the truth and the life. This is a clear statement of radical exclusivity. It quite clearly dismantles the idea that all roads lead to God. Jesus is very much saying, I am The way. There's something about who I am and what I have done that uniquely opens the way to the Father. But what we tend to miss or to underemphasize is the second half of the verse. No one comes to the Father except through me. Notice Jesus doesn't say heaven. He doesn't say eternal life. He says no one comes to the Father except through me. In other words, what he's telling us is the thing he wants to offer us, to give us, is relational connectedness with a person. What good is going to heaven if you don't want to be around the person who dwells there? What good is eternal life if you don't want to spend eternity with the person who is there? The most important thing you and I get through faith in Jesus Christ is a father. And so I just want us to think on this this morning. I want us to, in a sense, become more fully Trinitarian. I don't want us to stop talking about Jesus or stop celebrating who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. But I want us to get better at talking about the Father, at understanding that the main and primary thing we get in the gospel is a Father. So here's the outline for this morning. I want to talk about what it means to have God as Father, why we struggle to relate to God as Father, and what to do about it. Okay, So that's where we're headed. What it means to have God as Father, why we struggle to relate to God as Father, and what to do about it. So first, what does it mean to have God as Father? Here's what I want to explore. What did it mean for Jesus to have God as Father? Because that's part of what John wants to show us. The first thing John wants to show us is if we're going to understand the Lord Jesus Christ, We need to understand him in relationship to God the Father. So what does it mean for Jesus to have God as Father? And there are three main things John wants to show us. It meant that Jesus had the Father's affection, the Father's presence, and the Father's authority. There are many things John has to say about Jesus' relationship with the Father. But three basic ones are that Jesus had the Father's affection, he enjoyed the Father's presence, and he welcomed the Father's authority. What I'm going to do for the next few minutes is we're just going to travel through the Gospel of John. I'm just going to show you a bunch of verses in the Gospel of John that show us Jesus' relationship with the Father. So let's start in John chapter 5, verse 20. And notice, one of the first things it means for Jesus to have God as Father is that he has the Father's affection, John chapter 5, verse 20, For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. The first thing Jesus has as the unique Son of God is he has the Father's affection. The Father loves the Son. And notice, this love takes a certain shape. It means the Father shows the Son what he's doing. He lets him in on his plans and purposes. One of the ways a father shows love is by showing his children what he's doing, right? If you had a father who was meaningfully a good father, one of the things he did for you was showed you some things about how to live life. If I think about why do I know how to change the oil in a car? Why do I know how to sweat copper pipe? I know these things because I watched my dad do these things, right? Because as a kid, one of the things you're attentive to is just what is dad doing? Well, today dad's changing the oil in the car. So I remember walking out in the garage and be like, dad, what are you doing? Right? Part of how a father displays love is by letting his children in on things he is doing. One One of the gaps in the places where we feel lack in our lives is when our fathers didn't do this well. I remember talking to one young man who was sort of lamenting some of the absence of his father in his life, and he said, I had a dad who was present, but my dad never taught me to do anything. Like, I've had to figure it all out for myself. That's hard, right? That's one of those places where we feel the lack of a father's love. Jesus did not lack that because his father loved him and let him in on his purposes and plans. The father loves the son. And shows him all that he himself is doing. The second thing it meant for Jesus to have God as his father is that he had the father's presence. John 16, verse 32. You might remember this. We looked at it not long ago. Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he's saying, you guys are all going to leave me. He says this, Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone for the father is is with me. In his deepest moment of loneliness, when all of his friends, despite their best interest, left him, despite their best intentions, abandoned him, he was not alone. He says, my father is with me. He had the father's presence. He could count on the father's closeness. In two weekends from now, my older son Parker graduates with his master's degree, and my younger son Lewis graduates from high school in the same weekend. Here's what I want you guys to know I'm not preaching that weekend, okay? Um, and here's why because I'm going to be present at both of those moments in my son's lives. You know why? Because presence matters, right? Like, one of the things we do as parents is we just try to show up in as many ways as we can. So, I'm gonna be present in those moments. Why? Not because they wouldn't graduate if I wasn't there. They would still do the thing. In fact, my older son uh, graduated with his undergrad during COVID. So, they had a virtual graduation. Do you know how lame that is? It's like, why don't you walk across the stage in front of a camera and we'll take a video of you walking across the stage. And then on graduation day, we'll just play that video online and call it good. It was the worst graduation ever, right? And because one of the things we want in that moment is we wanna say, hey, let's show up and like mark this moment. presence matters. Jesus, even in his moments of deepest loneliness, had the Father's presence. Finally, Jesus also welcomed the Father's authority in his life. Look at John 14 verse 31. Jesus says, I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father we have this weird thing we do where we separate the idea of love from the idea of authority or obedience, right? Jesus did not have that problem. In his world, obeying the Father's authority, doing the things the Father commanded is an expression of love for the Father. It's like, I know the Father loves me and I welcome the Father's authority in my life. I want to do everything he's commanded so that the world might know that I love him. So this is what it meant for Jesus to have God as Father. It meant he had the Father's affection, he had the Father's presence, and he welcomed the Father's authority. Now, here's the amazing connection John wants to make. Because Jesus had those things, and because you're united to Jesus, you also have those things. This is your Father, the same Father that Jesus had, And the same good things that flowed into the life of Jesus because of his relationship with the Father, those are now yours as well. Listen to what Jesus says in John chapter 20, verse 17. This is after his resurrection. Notice what he says to Mary Magdalene in the garden. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father. To my God and your God. Do you hear what he's saying? Now that he's raised from the dead, he wants his disciples to know, you are my brothers, and my father is your father, and my God is your God. This is the good news of the gospel, that through the death and resurrection of Jesus, his father becomes your father and my father, and we become his brothers and sisters in this beautiful family of God. And what does that mean for us? It means three things. Like Jesus, we have the Father's affection. John makes this explicit. Look at John 16, verse 27. Jesus says, For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and believed that I came from God. Jesus wants his disciples to know, hey, the Father himself loves you. You, Thomas. You, Peter. You, Mary Magdalene. The Father loves you. Listen again to Packer, whose chapter on this, In Knowing God, is one of the best chapters on the fatherhood of God that I've ever read. He says this, God receives us as sons and loves us with the same steadfast affection with which he eternally loves his beloved, only begotten son. There are no distinctions of affection in the divine family. We are all loved just as fully as Jesus is loved. Isn't that amazing? There are no distinctions of affection in the divine family. God loves every one of us as deeply and as fully as he loved Jesus himself. That is profound. Second, not only do we have the affection of the Father, but we have the presence of the Father. John 14, verse 23 says this, Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word And my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Hey, one of the most fascinating things about reading the Bible is paying attention to little words like with and in, little prepositions. Jesus is saying, We're gonna come and be with you. Those who love me, those who belong to me, the Father and I are making our home with them. We have the presence of the Father in our lives. Listen, this is the whole reason why our church has this weird name that it does, right? I know you meet people in the grocery store, they're like, where do you go to church? You're like, I go to Cormdale, and they're like, Did you say Corndale? What is that? What did you just say? Right? And you have to explain, I don't know, it's Latin because the lead pastor's weird and it has this goofy name that's in another another language. But listen, that phrase just means in the presence of God. Like what we're trying to capture is what it means to belong to Jesus Christ, is we now live in God's presence. All of our life is lived with the presence of God. God is present with us every day, in every moment, in everything. There's no place we go to escape the presence of God the Father because we belong to him. We have the Father's presence. And third, just like Jesus, we welcome the Father's authority in our lives. John 14, 21, Jesus says this, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, He it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father. You see what he's saying? The same relationship of love that causes me to welcome the Father's commandments and want to keep them is now yours. Those who love me keep my commandments and therefore display love for the Father. We welcome the Father's authority in our lives just as Jesus did in his life, because what it means to have a Father is to be under the authority the loving leadership of our heavenly father. So what does it mean to have God as father? It means lots of things, but three very basic truths in the gospel of John. It means that we enjoy his fatherly affection. We enjoy his presence and we're under his good authority. This is the good news of what the gospel gives us. It gives us a father who loves us, who is present and who wants his good and loving and kind authority to flow into our lives to change us and make us like him. So, let's move now to the second question. If that's all true, and it is, why do we struggle to relate to God as Father? Let me first of all address a common answer to this question that I don't think gets to the heart of it. It's not a full enough answer. And that common answer is this. I struggled to relate to God as father because I had a poor relationship with my earthly father. Though that is true for many of us, that does not explain why we struggle to relate to God as father. It matters, but it's not a full explanation. I want to let J.I. Packer writing 50 years ago in a different time and a different world with a sort of older fatherly voice, speak with a different light on this question. Listen to what Packer writes. I have heard it seriously argued that the thought of divine fatherhood can mean nothing to those whose human father was inadequate or absent. But that is just not true. The thought of our maker becoming our perfect parent is a thought which can have meaning for everybody. Whether we come to it by saying I had a wonderful father, and I see that God is like that only more so. Or by saying, my father disappointed me here, here, and here, but God, praise his name, will be very different. Or even by saying, I have never known what it is to have a father on earth, but thank God I have one now in heaven. The truth is that all of us have a positive ideal of fatherhood by which we judge our own father's. Do you hear what he's saying? If your father was not necessarily a good father, do you know how you know that? You know that because you have an ideal of fatherhood that your father fell short of. And the reason you have that ideal is because God as your father who made you in his image gave you that ideal. You intuitively know something of what a good father is, which is how you know your father might not have measured up. And in fact, no father measures up fully, do they? So I want you to see it's simply not true that you can't relate to God as father because of your earthly father. It is true that your story may create complexities and challenges in your relationship with God that are going to need to be overcome. And part of immersion in the family of God is meant to help with that, just to help you see all different kinds of people and learn to relate differently. So it is true that your story matters. But listen, I had a great father. He's here in the room this morning. He was and is a godly, reliable, faithful presence in my life. And I still struggle sometimes to relate to God as Father. So it isn't true that if you didn't have such a good dad, you're going to have a hard time relating to God as Father, and if you did have a good dad, easy time relating to God as Father. Rather, what's true is that our struggle to relate to God as Father has less to do with our own fathers and more to do with our own hearts. There's something in us that makes this hard, and it's this. If I want to describe it or put some words on it, every one of us, deep down in our being, lives with an orphan mindset. In other words, we struggle to really believe that we actually belong in God's family. Anyone who has adopted a child, which is many people in our church, will tell you that finalizing the adoption is only the beginning. Like it can take years for a child to trust and to develop secure attachments and to really take their place as part of the family. That's an ongoing struggle even after the paperwork is done. And the same is true for us spiritually. The fact that we are adopted into God's family by virtue of Christ does not mean that we know how to live in God's family and that we always do so with joy and happiness and with a deep sense of settledness. Rather, we tend to live like we're on our own, like it's all up to us, like we can't really depend on or rely on the Father's affection and presence and blessing, and authority. There's something in us that would rather perform to earn God's love than to simply receive it. There's something in us that wants to feel like we are worthy of love, that wants to feel like we deserve to be in God's family, like we earned our way in here somehow. And that's deeply wired in us, And as a result, we tend to live like orphans instead of like a son and daughter in a family. So, I want to give you a little checklist. I want to give you a little way to see some of the shape of this in your own soul. This is from the Gospel-Centered Life, which is a tool that we use frequently around here. It's a little sort of tool for spiritual formation And in one of the exercises, we draw these little contrasts between what does it mean to live like an orphan, what does it mean to live like a son or daughter? So I've got seven of these for you. Here's the first one. The orphan feels alone, lacks a vital daily intimacy with God. Can you relate to that? The son or daughter, by contrast, has a growing fellowship and communion with God. Second, the orphan has little faith, lots of fear and anxiety and worry. The son or daughter has a daily working trust in God's sovereign plan, meaning you don't just know about the sovereignty of God, it's actually beginning to take shape as you live each day. The orphan tends to be rebellious, resists authority, isn't easily teachable. The son or daughter has strength to be submissive, has a soft and teachable heart. The orphan needs to be right unable to tolerate criticism. The son or daughter is open to criticism because he or she consciously rests in Christ's perfection. Notice the word consciously there. In other words, it's not just in my doctrinal statement or in my theology. I'm consciously resting in Christ. The orphan tends to point out what's wrong, is often dissatisfied. Sorry that that's true of you guys. That was a joke, by the way. That's true of me, is what I was trying to say. You guys did not laugh. You're like, wow, you're being really harsh right now. (laughs) Relax, everyone, okay? The son or daughter chooses to focus on what's right, is able to rejoice in imperfection. The orphan confesses other people's sins, right? Really good at seeing what's wrong in other people. The son or daughter is able to freely confess his or her own faults and sins. We see what's wrong with us. And finally, the orphan feels powerless, has no real victory over sin and selfishness, feels stuck. The son or daughter is seeing more and more victory over sin by the power of the Spirit. The point in these contrasts, by the way, is to show you the shape this takes in your soul. There is no one in this room who lives fully and consistently in the son or daughter category. This is not a binary choice. You're either this or that. What I'm showing to you is, though we have been welcomed into God's family by virtue of Christ, we, because of our own unbelief, have a tendency still to live as though that's not true. And this is the shape that takes. Here's what it looks like when we're not living in our adoption as God's sons and daughters. Okay? So the reason we struggle to relate to God as Father is because of our own unbelief. It's because of our tendency to live disconnected from the love of our Father. It's very good news for us that in the gospel, we get a father, because one of our deepest challenges is to actually live our lives in a way that counts on and rests in the goodness of the Father's love. So, what do we do about it? What do we do about this challenge, this problem, this struggle in our souls? John gives us a beautiful answer to this question. It's in the farewell discourse. The the dialogue Jesus has with his disciples as he's getting ready to go to the cross in John chapter 14, verses 16 through 20. Here's what Jesus says. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. So, friends, here's the good news of the gospel that Jesus Christ is proclaiming to his disciples then and to his disciples now. Your father knows that you struggle to believe and rest in his love. And because he knows that, as a good father, he's sending you a helper. That helper is called the Holy Spirit. In fact, if you ask, what is the work of the Holy Spirit? And you start searching the pages of the New Testament to answer that question. Here's one of the primary answers you find here in John and in Romans 8. And in Galatians 4, the scriptures tell us the work of the Spirit is to testify to our spirit that we are children of God. The Spirit is given specifically to help us rest in our status as God's beloved sons and daughters. God knows this is hard for you. You had all kinds of reasons why you feel disconnected from my love. So I'm going to help you. I'm going to give you a helper, the Holy Spirit. And notice what Jesus says, this great phrase in verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans. Do you hear what he's saying to his disciples? I mean, remember, this is before he goes to the cross. This is back when they're like, hey, Jesus, we got your back, man. We're going to be there for you. We're going to be with you in your time of need. I don't know what you're talking about, this whole death thing, but we're right there. And then, right, he knows they're all going to leave. He's going to be left alone. The only one who's going to be with him is his father. And what he says is, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I know what's going to happen in your soul. When you desert me, you're going to be be alienated from the Father's love and feel like you've failed and you're not worthy of being in the family. And here's here's the truth. I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm going to come to you. I'm going to send my spirit. Because I live, you also will live. And in that day, you're going to know that I'm in the Father and you're in me and I in you. There's this deep communion and fellowship between me and you and the Father that I'm pulling you into. And in that day, you're going to know. You're going to know. So this is the truth. This is the good news that Jesus preached to his disciples then and to his disciples now. Our job is to repent and believe. To repent of our unbelief, our tendency to live as orphans. Listen to me. I want to change what the word repent means for some of you. Okay? Some of you, when you hear the word repent, you think I did something bad. I should stop doing that and do something good. That is part of the biblical category of repentance. It absolutely connects to behavior. But listen to me. Repentance is also turning from your unbelief. From your tendency to not rest in and count as true the things that God actually says about himself. Your problem is God says he is a good father. You don't believe it. That's what you need to repent of. That I don't take you at your word. Repentance means, all right, Lord, as hard as this is for me to believe, I'm embracing, I'm turning from my unbelief, and I'm embracing what you say about yourself. That is the shape repentance takes. So we turn from our unbelief, and we believe, we embrace by faith these promises that Christ is giving us, that Jesus will not leave us as orphans, that the Spirit dwells with us and will be in us, that this Father who is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is our Father. That he loves us. That he's present with us. That his authority wants to flow into our lives. Listen. If a child in in the natural world has been adopted into a family but struggles to rest in their status as a son or daughter in that family. You guys know there are all kinds of therapies and interventions that the good people in our society put around that child to sort of help them with that. But really they all come down To this, receiving your identity as a son or daughter. Just resting in your place in this family, believing that you actually belong here, enjoying the love and acceptance that is actually yours. And if that's true of broken, fragmented human families, how much more is it true of our Father in heaven? Our deepest need is just to receive and rest in our place in the family that is ours, not because we deserved it, not because we earned it, not because we worked ourselves here, but because the Lord Jesus Christ died and rose from the dead and brought us in. Friends, what does the gospel give us? Yes, it gives us peace with God. Yes, it gives us eternal life. Yes, it gives us a new heart. But most importantly, the gospel is the good news that in Jesus, God has become our Father. And he's welcomed us into his family. Because of Jesus' death and resurrection, your Father in heaven loves you with a deep and abiding and persistent love. So let's receive his love by grace through faith this morning. Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, thank you that you are the perfect heavenly Father. And we acknowledge this morning our unbelief, our inability to really rest in who you are, our inability to receive our place in your family, We confess all the places where we are prone to doubt that you really do love us, that you really do want us, that you really do welcome us in, that you actually love me as much as you love Christ. We just confess all of our doubts and all of our unbelief. And we affirm this morning the promises of Scripture, that you are good, that you have loved us, and that you do welcome us into your family. And so we thank you for this good news. We pray this morning that you might open our hearts more fully to receive it. Forgive us for our unbelief. Forgive us for the places where we just live distantly from your promises. By your spirit this morning, awaken faith and confidence and a sense of our place in your family. Remind us that because of what Jesus did for us, we have been brought in not just as forgiven sinners, but as your son's and daughters. So help us believe that and rest in that for our good and for your glory. Amen.